0: I think as a high performance lead, it's not just how you leave a mark on your staff, because that's one thing, but it's what you leave on the organization and those people who count in the organization.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Grant Downing. Now, First and foremost, I just want to say Merry Christmas. I don't know if that's appropriate thing to say anymore. I don't care what holiday you celebrate. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, I, that's a holiday I don't even know. But whatever holiday you celebrate, I want to wish you the merriest of holidays. And I hope that you have an amazing holiday season with friends, with family. Keep it safe, but enjoy this time of year and enjoy just spending time with the people that are nearest and dearest to you. Now, normally at this point in the show, I would do the whole week that was thing, I'd recap what's going on, but in the interest of getting all these shows done, produced and out the door before the holidays hit, I'm changing things up a little bit. And so instead, what I'm giving you are five things over five weeks to make sure 2021 is your best year ever. So this is our third week and week one, we talked about setting goals and finding both process and outcome-based goals. Number two, we talked about building in accountability and hiring coaches or mentors to help ensure that 2021 is an awesome year. But this week, I wanna talk about getting back on the horse. And I think too often in society or in life, we get we get knocked off our horse and we just kind of stop, right? We just kind of roll over, the horse runs away and we just kind of quit. And I think this is something that, Not enough people talk about and that the most successful people do the absolute best, right? Yeah, the successful people sometimes have physical gifts or mental gifts or they just have incredibly strong character, but I think the best of the best fail a lot. They fail a lot, probably more than the rest of us. And and what they consistently do is they don't let those failures knock them down. They don't let them knock them out. They get back on the horse and they keep going. So, you know, we talked about in previous weeks, hey, set goals. Maybe you're not going to achieve your goals, or maybe you don't achieve them in the time frame that you would think, right? Okay. Or maybe you hire a coach and you still don't achieve the things that you want. Okay. That doesn't mean you just stop. If something is important enough to you to write it down, to make it a goal, or to hire a coach, then, hey, look, there's going to be failure. There's going to be adversity. And that's okay. Okay. I think too often we get just stuck or or we we think that failure is like an endpoint and failure is just a chance for us to learn and to grow. And I think more often than not, when we see that adversity, when we run into those challenges, that's when we really level up. That's when we hit those uncomfortable periods and now we can really grow and we can see what kind of character we really have. So kind of an inspirational little pep talk today. I don't do these very often, so I hope you enjoy it. But look, If you're not where you're at now, if you feel like you're not achieving a certain level of success or you feel like you continue to fail, that's okay, right? Just know that that's part of the process. Maybe you need to change your plan a little bit. Maybe you don't have the right coach for you. Maybe you need to go back to some of these process-oriented goals and revisit them. But at the end of the day, if a goal is worth achieving, it's worth failing at a couple times to get there. And we've all heard the story of Thomas Edison. I think 10,000 times he failed to get the light bulb to work. And he didn't think of them as failures. It was just 10,000 ways that didn't work. I think that's such a powerful way to look at things. Failure is part of the process. It's part of the journey. Be okay with it, but also know and understand, hey, you get knocked down seven times. What's most important? You get up an eighth. All right. That does it for me. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Grant Downey. Hey friend, Mike Robertson here. And before we jump into this week's episode, I want to talk to you about something real quick. If you're listening to this show, you realize the power of coaches, whether you're a trainer or coach yourself, or an athlete who has worked with coaches in the past, you know how hard it is to accomplish truly amazing feats on your own, and I'm no different. In fact, I've come to the realization that while 2020 wasn't awful, I'm definitely not where I want to be yet in life. And as such, I'm going to be hiring multiple coaches in 2021 to help get me back on track. But here's the thing, sometimes you want coaching, but simply can't afford a private coach. After all, I realize whether it's in person or online, my private coaching program isn't for everybody. But what if I could still help you in more of a group style program? If this sounds interesting at all, my annual training group could be a perfect fit for you. In this program, we go through four three-month phases of training, building the engine, leaning season, athletic domination, and stronger. But the cool part of this program is that it's more than just a training program. Every month, you'll not only get a new workout to follow, but we'll also add in monthly challenges where we develop habits with regards to nutrition, recovery, and mindset to help ensure that next year is your best year ever. Trust me, I know 2020 hasn't always been kind to our habits and our routines, so this portion of the program alone could be worth the price of admission. If you're interested in learning more about the annual training group, head on over to robertsontrainingsystems.com forward slash annual. Again, that's robertsontrainingsystems.com forward slash annual. Or if you have any questions or concerns or just want to learn more about the program, shoot me an email at mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com. Okay, that's enough from me. Thanks so much for listening, and I'd love the chance to work with you and help make 2021 your best year ever. Grant Downey has 34 years of industry experience in high-performance sport and has been a high-performance lead for over 20 years. He spends his time now as a critical friend to sporting organizations like the City Football Group, the Premier League, and the Scottish Football Association, as well as running a mentorship program for practitioners and leads in the high-performance field. Grant is incredibly passionate about the person and soft skill development to maximize the development of the skills we can't measure, but that truly make a difference. In this show, Grant and I take an in-depth look at the high-performance manager and how to be successful in any sort of leadership role. We cover a ton of bases, including why selling the dream is so important, why you should be focused on the success of others versus yourself, the role of recruitment in elite sport, and how to manage both talkers and reflectors. During the interview, a few key words came to mind, refreshing, insightful, and wise being just a few, and I think you're going to love this amazing conversation between Grant and I. But enough for me. Let's do this. Grant, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Now I'm at the good old age of 58. And what I am doing with my life is I've moved to a a Scottish island to sort of lead a different type of life. I've been very fortunate that I worked for sort of 32 years full time in professional elite sport but that takes its toll on you. Yes. And also, I think it's very important when you're involved in elite sport, you have a dream and it should be your dream. What's your life going to be? If your identity is the badge that you're wearing on your shirt, one day you're going to get lonely. And I think it's very important that you actually have something for yourself. And my dream from a very young age was to go and live on one of my favourite Scottish islands, be able to either buy a house or build a house or and, and lead a different type of lifestyle. So therefore, at this present time, I am by profession a physiotherapist. I treat a few private patients. I do a, a consultative work for a number of sporting organisations. But I actually love watching otters. I love going to watch the deer. I love playing a few games of golf very badly. But I enjoy a, a mixture of, of of professional work and a balanced life, which when you're working in professional sport, there is no balance. But it's not meant to be. So let's not try and always look for it. But actually, I always had the dream that one day, I wanted to do something different for me. And I think I'm getting that better now. I wasn't great at it when I was younger. I wouldn't profess otherwise, but I wouldn't have changed anything I've done either.
1: I love it. I love it. So tell me what originally led you to the world of physical preparation and into sport? What got you started in all this?
0: From a very young age, I was pretty good at most sports, but never going to be that good to be a professional anything. And I remember someone saying to me, would you like to work in elite sport or just sport, never mind elite sport. And I remember regularly going to watch football matches with my father and rugby matches and thinking, who was that person running on the field treating these people? And that was the physical therapist. Mm -hmm. And I I remember my dad saying to me one day, would you like to be a physiotherapist? And, And I suddenly thought, would I? i don't know and so i I, and i remember looking into it from a young age and suddenly i thought i think i would like that and in these days let's give it some context we never had in those days athletic trainers we never had strength and conditioning coach we, we never had nutritionalists so when i looked at it you know you were a physical therapist but actually your 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 probably specific skills weren't as good as many of the ones have today but you had to have a lot more general skills mm-hmm. and actually it did appeal to me because i love people and i love the differences in people and so i was drawn to a profession i think that could assist people to help them treat their, their, their dreams through sport or even just through life. And, you know, I I, I was fortunate to work in hospitals as well as in in, in elite sport. And I, I loved the hospital environment because, you know, it was serious. You know, you dealt with some people who were dying, which is, you know, not very nice to see, but actually you had a chance to maybe improve their quality of life. And that really put a print on me that when I went to sport, however serious it was tearing your cruciate ligament, it wasn't life or death.
1: Sure, sure. So talk to me about your career path, because as you alluded to, 32 years in elite sport, how did you get started? And then just walk us through some of your positions, some of the stops that you had along the way. Because uh, unfortunately, a lot of young coaches, and I've interacted with them, think, oh, I graduated college. I did an internship. Great. I'm going to be in the NBA or in the NFL in two or three years. And it doesn't always work like that. So talk to us about your career path.
0: And 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 listen, for all I started, it it doesn't work that way. And I don't think it should. Yeah. Because I think people are... Rightfully in a hurry to get someplace, but are you then really prepared for it? And that's the question because once you're there, you've got to deliver and you better be ready for it. So I was, listen, when, once I qualified as a physiotherapist, I worked in what we call is the NHS, which is the national sort of health service in, in Great Britain, in Glasgow. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. But in the in the meantime, I volunteered to work in, in sport like rugby and football. And actually, I didn't even get paid at those times. And I can also remember in my third year with the rugby club I worked at, they were that pleased with my work. They paid for me to travel to their to their training venue on a bus and so I got a bus pass for a month so that was my that was my salary over three years but I worked there three nights a week I worked every Saturday occasionally Sunday with players I did lots of Self-learning. I wanted. I always wanted to go and watch how other phys- physiotherapists did their work. And again, just to give the audience some connection. Remember, physiotherapists in those days did strength and conditioning. Yeah. By the way, we weren't very good at it. I hate to add. <laughs> we we thought we were, but we weren't. But you know, we 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 had to do a lot more than just being a physical therapist. You know, So I got into it that way. Then again, I often used to volunteer in my holidays to go and do different work projects. And I, one of them was I, I volunteered to go and work for the English Football Association in a rehabilitation centre that just set up. And this was in a place called Lillishaw. And so the FA had set that up. I volunteered for a week and I didn't know they were looking to take on another physio. And at the end of the week, the head of it just turned to me and said, we quite like the way you work. Would you come and work here? And I was astounded because I wasn't experienced enough. I didn't think I was good enough. But I suddenly thought, listen, take the leap of faith. You're not married. You've got no connections to Glasgow where you're you're working. Go and work somewhere else and tried. And I did. But and I was out my depth. I wouldn't <laughs> pretend otherwise. But I knew I was out my depth. And I don't think that's a weakness then, because I knew where to look for answers. And yeah. I was going back to my room almost every night thinking I've got a new injury to look at. What am I going to do? I would be looking at books. I would be phoning people. Again, remember, in these days wasn't such things as the web. You couldn't look things up. It was book-based. But I wanted to learn. I had a passion to Again, I wanted to get what I call not injuries better, that person better. And actually, you know, I wanted to look at so many different ways. So the physiotherapist in those days would almost pick the player off the field, maybe take them to the surgeon for surgery. Then it was your job to get them back to performance. And so you had a big job. And I did that for about eight years thoroughly enjoyed it and then one of the clubs who I did a lot of work for Glasgow Rangers invited me to go back and be the head physio and at first I said no because I didn't really know what the job was and then once I got to speak to the manager we were the first club in the UK to decide that me as the physical therapist wouldn't run on the field because I didn't think that was my area of expertise. I was far better in the gymnasium rehabilitating the players doing the strength and conditioning. And actually, when I sold him my idea, he said no at first too. And then he came back to me three months later and said, I've been giving this some thought, this will work. And cut a long story short, I think it did work. And I spent nine years there with three different managers. The last manager, and again, and it's worth talking about, I didn't really get on that well with. And I stood up and I fought him. And I physical therapist or head of performance fighting a head coach, there's only one winner, and right. rightfully I got sacked. <laughs> you know, And that's good. It's good to be sacked because actually it makes you realise you're not as important as you think you were, and actually you need to reflect on your style because this is a young head co- coach who probably I was a little bit intimidating, and I used to go to him, this is the way we do things around here. Well, how foolish was I? Right. Because at the end of the day, when you meet a new head coach, you've almost got to form... A rapport with him how does he want things or she want things done hmm. because it's not just about you so he sacked me which again i thank him for now and i still speak with him because i've got no problem with it he, he gave me a favor he he just reminded me of you're not as important as you think you are i then went to middlesbrough football club as head of sports medicine and science for the for the first team and the academy so i was but again but i was a hands-on clinical clinical person and i worked there for eight years under what four managers Thoroughly enjoyed it, and they, as the club, they they went into a little bit of decline, and as a result of it, I was asked one day to go and see the the sort of the the sporting director or the chief executive of the club, and he just said, Grant, would love you to stay, but would like you to take a sixty percent pay cut, and I said, Well, can I think about it? And he went, Yeah, and I went, Well, the answer's no. (laughs) You know, I've got some pride, or or I said to him, I will do it if I can work sixty percent less hours. (laughs) Right because I'm not prepared to do it. And I suddenly thought, no, that you've got to sometimes have your principles that you will not budge from. And I was, again, I left that job having done probably then about 25 years in elite sport, thinking I'm quite happy to see what's out there. And I was fortunate enough to be approached by the City Football Group, which is Manchester City, to see would I be interested in going to help them with their first team. And actually, again, I said to them, do you know something? I don't know if I do, but actually I notice your academy is growing and you're looking for a lead in that. And and they said, well, listen, if you want to apply for that role, we'd be delighted. And they did a proper recruitment process. I wasn't given the job and nor should I be. I, you know, no one should ever just be given jobs. You should have to apply for them. You have to shoot, see if you're a fit and they're a fit. And cut a long story short. I had three long interviews and then they did offer me a job and I was delighted to accept it and I was fortunate to be there for eight years in, 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 in very different capacities doing different things. But again, it came to an end when I decided this time to end it. And the club were great with me because – and they even said to me, listen, you know, we would like you to stay. We'll offer you a new contract. And I was like, it's not for money. It's because of my life choice. And they were actually grateful. And they said, fantastic. Will you still be a consultant for us like you are now? I'm delighted to be a consultant for them now. But they realized I I could have probably got a lot more money to stay, but it wasn't about money. It was about my time of life. And wanting me to spend more time for myself because you know better than anyone, when you work in elite sport, you know, someone else is really buying your life and Mm. everything else you know, we say our families come first, and we like to think they do, but sometimes in elite sport, I'm sorry they don't, and it's sad. And yes. and and maybe maybe we need to get that balance better. But I spent time there, and then the last two years I've been I've. It sounds like I've done a lot of work just in football, but I also was fortunate enough to work at Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games. I've done some different work for national governing bodies like Cirque du Soleil in America. Um, I worked for the National Jockey Club, and it was I, and I've done those with the, with these jobs in mind to try and improve what I did. And I think there's a danger. we pigeon pitching ourselves s- into one sport. Yes. And the only way you broaden your horizons is by looking how other sports do things, not just at your own sport. And, you know, my quest for knowledge has never stopped because, you know, I realize now after 34 years how little I knew and still how little I know.
1: Yeah, I love
0: it. So I, I've
1: got a follow up to that because this is really intriguing. So you got offered a position or you got offered to apply for the first team position, yet you asked for an academy position. And most people would think of that as totally backwards. So what made you do
0: that? Do you know, it was really interesting. I think I'd spent, what, 25 years at first team. And actually, I, I just wanted a change. And I remember speaking to a very good friend of mine who was the academy director at Middlesbrough. And I said, you know, because he knew I loved working with children. And I just said to him, you know, I think it would be a real good challenge for me. And I think, and I think what I thought more than anything was a passion of mine. I saw a lot of young players coming through the academy system who, once they were in that big locker room with the first team players froze, and they couldn't handle the pressure. They could, could, they could work well out in the gym. They could bench press as good as anyone. They could squat as good as anyone. They had, could train technically, but then put them in front of 50,000 people and ask them to perform. It's different. And I suddenly thought, maybe, maybe we're trying to evolve them at 21 when we should be doing it at 14. Mm. And that doesn't mean we suddenly want to put a 14 year old young player under ridiculous pressure, but we've got to put them under some pressure and we've got to learn how to build it up, but mentally, emotionally, as well as physically. And I thought I would have a good skill set to, to sort of do that at the academy. Now, I hastened about as soon as I started. I realized my learning was going to be on a steep learning curve because children are not many adults. And sometimes in professional sport, we treat them that way. You know, we just take the physical program and dilute it. We take the mental program and dilute it. But we actually forget children are stupid. They grow at different rates, but they're meant to be stupid. So the problem is the adult, not the child. Yeah. And actually, I'm a great believer below 16 in now in multi-sport activity, letting children have fun, letting them express themselves. But there's got to be a structure. But the structure's got to be flex. And it's not got to be so judgmental of them as, as players. It's got to be judgmental of them as young adolescents growing physically, mentally, emotionally, and socially. And we've got to adjust to that. And so I loved it. It was a, such a... It was refreshing. Yeah. It was different. And I think sometimes, again, you know, too many people, as you rightfully said, just want to go to that first team. That's where, that's where Mecca is. Well, it isn't. You know, Mecca for me is sitting back on a couch thinking, you know, that player at 14, you hopefully have assisted to go on a pathway that when they mention your name, they smile. And that smile means everything to me. Yeah. I love that. I love that.
1: So diving into some of our, our, our meat and potatoes here, because I've had a couple people on the show in the past that would be described as high performance directors or performance yeah. leads. But I'd love to get your take on this. What are the primary roles of a performance lead with a big sports club?
0: And I think you used the word there, a big sports club. So first of all, if it's a big sports club, you shouldn't be a physio, S&C or psychologist that's practicing. You should be someone that's actually got a non-clinical role or a non-hands-on role. And by that, you've got to lead. And basically, as I call it, you've got to be in the helicopter looking down or everything's happening. But you've got to be able to go on the ground and influence it. But leave those on the ground to do their job. Hmm. I think one of the key roles is, first of all, forming a relationship with the people above you. You know, what are you responsible for? What are you accountable for? What is high performance meant to look like on a good day, on a bad day? And how are you going to hold everyone account for it? How do you recruit staff? How do you bring people into your organization? What are they meant to look like? Do you want them to be clones of you? Well, I certainly don't. I want people who are going to be themselves. And I want to, I certainly don't want people who think like I do. If they think like I do, they'll make the same mistakes as I do. Do I want them to have the same values? Of course I do. Do I want to align our values up to the organization's values? And I think this lead must be the person almost selling the dream of the organization, but in a performance manner that people want to buy and it, they then make it their dream. And it's got to be a dream. You know, you talk about a mission statement, the mission statements are flat. You know, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela didn't have a mission statement, they had a dream. And I think we've got a dream big. And what does it mean to you? So when I was at Manchester City, it took us three years to come up with our mission statement. But our mission performance statement was in five years time, we see City players playing globally that know how to win, look after mind, body, and soul, and we are proud of that football brand. I love it. And what we wanted, and we wanted these young boys and girls, because we had girls eventually, who would represent a club on the pitch, that knew how to win, but actually they knew themselves and so they didn't have to rely on a physio, an s and you know, a psychologist to perform. We'd actually taught them about their own selves and skills and they could perform, but they remained a balanced human being, which is very difficult in the sporting context. Because you and I know these young boys before you know it and girls will have two million followers on Twitter. Everyone's telling them they're wonderful. Well, they're not always wonderful. And actually, it's important for us. And so from my angle, the head of performance can see all of that, can understand all of that, knows when to step in, but most importantly, knows when not to bother to step in. And actually, you empower staff to sort of be the best version of themselves, but actually within a framework. But the framework's got to flex. And at the same time, you have to have a, a strategic direction you're heading in. But it shouldn't be so black and white that you can't change direction because you don't always get it right. And I think, again, as the performance lead, you've got to be prepared to tell stories to the staff of where you've got things wrong and where it's not worked. But this is what you're going to do to get it right. Yeah. Because actually, you, I, and I can always remember, I used to always sit down with the staff at the end of every season and say, you know, tell me how you think I've managed you well. How could I improve what I've done? And I think one of the things they always told me how to improve was I went too quick because I always wanted to get things done quickly. And that's a fault, but it means I get things done. Right. So, so it's an important strength of mine, but it's also a weakness. But also the one thing they always used to say was they loved when I used to tell them about things I got wrong because I remained a human being. Hmm rather than someone who they thought never got anything wrong. And they often used to say to me, you know, you seem very cool and calculated about decisions. I hear, yeah, but you don't know what's going on inside me. Right, right. And I think so. so
1: no, no, no. Okay. So, so, So I'm interested, like just taking that point, what are traits or skills that you feel like separate good ones from great ones? Because you, you're not just doing this yourself. You've interacted with others. You've mentored others. So what are the skills or the traits that help delineate a uh, pretty good performance manager to a great
0: one? I think, and it's a great question, I think the great ones seek clarity in what their role is, what's expected of them from the organization. They're able to then disseminate that to the staff who are working for them without actually putting them under pressure to think, you know, if you fail, I fail. It's not about that. It's about going on a journey. And I think the good ones know when to put staff under challenge, but also most of your job is to support people because most people generally are trying to do a good job. And I think it's actually selling that vision and knowing when to sense, check on them. So the one thing you must have, you know, you have to have a, an agree of academic intelligence and you've got to have a, a probably a previous skill as an S and C coach or a doctor or a physio, but actually as a performance lead that counts for nothing. It's actually almost much more your emotional intelligence your your intuition by able to walk on, as I call it, the shop floor and just observe and see what's going on and recognise when it's not a good day. But rather than accuse everyone of, well, why are we not having a good day? Out of interest, you know, what, what what's going on today? And someone will probably come to you and say, you know, things aren't going great today. Well, why is that? What can we do to get it better? Rather than just that spot check and why is things not working? And everyone's backs up instantly. And I think the great, but at times you've also got to have, I remember... A good friend of mine who eventually came and worked in in Manchester, and I was against appointing him because he was a friend of mine. So I actually withdrew from the interview panel. I knew he would be the right person for the job, but I couldn't appoint someone who's a friend. It's not right. right. It's, to me, it's a conflict of interest. But he was appointed. And I think one of the things he said to me after working with me for three years, he said, you know, the good thing about you is the staff know they can approach you, but they're always slightly apprehensive. And I went, good. Because you can't quite have an open door policy from I'll solve all your problems. No, solve your problems yourself if you can. But if you can't, come and see me with the potential solutions. And I think a a good high performance manager will trust his staff, will trust them to do their job, but be open enough that they can approach you and speak to you, But actually, as I said, don't just come with a problem. And so I think you've got to take a group of people and it's not your job just to educate them again. It's sending them to different places. So I I remember two young physiotherapists when I first went to Manchester City and two strength and conditioning coaches who had only ever worked in academy, had never sat in a first team dressing room, never actually seen what it was like to see a first team coach almost... Have a go at a player and ask that player to go out and perform in front of fifty thousand people. So my job was to see could I arrange that. I could tell them about it, but unless you've actually sat in that corner and seen what it really like, it's it's something to experience. And so my job was to try and facilitate visits to 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 help their education. But again, and this head head of performance for me must ensure that each person has a development plan. And that development plan is not just for the organisation, because I think if you purely – you have to remember, many staff are going to come and go. And I like that too. I like staff churn. I like – I have used to say to staff, listen, I'm delighted you're coming to work at Manchester City, but I'm looking forward to the day you leave already, because one day I want you to leave and go and do something else, because it's good. And it's. Good. I'll be doing the same. and I, And I think it's important you set up development plans that people see are for them. It benefits the organisation but also benefits the individual long term and a good performance lead will also, in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, I think you need to treat staff when they're leaving the organisation with the respect they deserve, even though they've got no value for you. And I can also remember i two of the staff I mentioned to you, one physio, one SNC, had been at Manchester City for about 10, 15 years. And when they were leaving, I made sure the club invited them, their partner and two other guests to the best seats in the stadium and have a meal before the game and someone once said to me you know why are you doing that they've got no value to you now and I went well they've got no value to the organization but first of all I think I did it for two reasons one they deserved it for their service but it actually shows those people in the organization who are working for you how you treat people Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and actually they have got no value for me but they do they're people still and actually it shows you're authentic as a leader
1: yes Yes, I love it. I love it. That's awesome. So
0: kind of carrying on
1: with the same thing, because I think one thing that we struggle with in our field is measuring our success in our individual roles. I know KPIs are talked about. I know there's lots of uh, buzzwords that are used, but how do you determine if a performance lead is doing a good or a bad job?
0: And I think it isn't measurable by a stick, as you said. I mean, yeah. I think, again, we, we, it's impossible. I think what you've got to do is you've got to take some general KPIs. And I think what you've got to do is you've got to speak to the, the head coach, probably the, 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 the head of the organization who's looking, maybe the general manager, whoever you report to, and ask them, what do they see success for this person? And it's probably the success of others, not them. And so it's, for example, do you decide on, let's say, player availability to perform? And we could do that. But if, but as the head of performance, if I don't have a say in who we're recruiting, I really don't want to be one of my KPIs. Because if the club are then recruiting all bad athletes, they're all going to get injured. (laughs) So why should I be judged on that? But if I'm sitting in recruitment, then I should be. And I think what you've got to do is you've got to agree a set of criteria. And it's not one. It's a combination of things. And it could be, you know, and the one thing we don't do very well these days, we don't often ask our athletes or our players, what do they think of the staff? And I think we should. And that's not to be, hey, I want to be buddies. I've never been been friends with one player I've worked with. I've been friendly with them all, but not friends. There's a big difference. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you've got to get to know them, but they're not friends. Because you're going to make, I had to make decisions that are going to maybe cost them $20 million. You can't, you know, you don't want to bet your best friend lose $20 million, but you might have to give that information. So I think the key, what does the organization think a, a high-performance lead should look like on a good day? What does it look like on a bad day? What does it look like on a good year? And I think there has to be again is this person empathetic to the organization do they do so a lot of the work i did in manchester wasn't just with the the academy it was then helping to set up the women's program i then did some leadership work with the organization and the hr department and so i think the success of the person is is if you go around the organization and again i often say to people when i'm recruiting people if i mention a certain person's name i want to you i'm going to look at you straight in the eye and what's your first response and yep. that tells me so much because often, you know, would you employ this person? Uh, obviously not. Right. You know, rather, yeah, straight away. Well, you know, and I think it's that. And, and again, you know, I think as a high performance lead, it's not just how you leave a mark on your staff, because that's one thing. But it's what you leave on the organization and those people who count in the organization. And I think, again, if we try and measure that, we would fail. But I think it's the mark and, and the systems you leave behind. I would like to think if I went back into the academy where I worked, the systems have evolved and have changed. I do. I don't want them to be the same as I did two years ago. But I'd like to think I've run the 400-meter race and I've run the first baton and put it in a good place for the next person to take it further. But I hope they take it further. And I hope to change it, too. I love that.
1: So one thing that I think every leader struggles with is getting everyone on the same page or getting them to buy in. And it doesn't matter whether you're a small business, a big business working for a large sports team or organization, getting everybody on the same page is tough. So as a high performance director or as a performance lead, Mm -hmm. how do you go about getting everyone
0: rowing in the same direction? Again, great question, and it is difficult, so let's not pretend otherwise. I could just tell you, you do it this, and it works. Well, I mean, it's not quite as simple as that by a long way. But I think what you've got to do, it starts with recruitment. So if you're in a position you're going to bring new people into the organisation, you know, you you're going to look for a certain skill set. And, and I think the interview process is so important because often it's done badly by high-performance directors because what they do is they interview and appoint. I would never, never do that. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm involved in the process, but I usually get a minimum of 20 contacts with other people who I trust their opinion. And so, for example, when I'm, let's say I'm interviewing you for the role in in, 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 in the job, I would get my PA, who is a highly intelligent female who has got emotional intelligence to show you around the facility. And she, someone's opinion I totally trust. It's amazing the number of people don't even speak to her because she's just the PA. She's not important. Mm. She's the most important person. She runs the department. Right. I just tell her. So things, what to do? So it's little contacts like that. I would get you to go for lunch with the staff who you're going to be working with, and they might turn around to me. The person didn't speak much. You don't think we'll get on with them? So I'm trying to trying to form an opinion of that that person, and so that's how you bring in the, in my opinion, the right people who who are going to think differently to you but have the same values. But if you've inherited staff, that's different, and they're the harder ones. And I think again, you've got to sell them. You've got to sell them the dream of what you're trying to achieve, how how much they can contribute it and how it looks on a good day, but most importantly, how it looks on a bad day. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like I often say to people, language is important. If you tell me how you're going to help me and how, how it's going to benefit you and I'm going to do this, I don't like the word I. It's about we. So let's start turning terminology. You know, I've got the athletes really strong in in, in the gym. Now now the coach has got them. He's not making any difference. Well, maybe your strength training's got no correlation to what he's doing. So you have obviously not connected. And so I think, again... You've got to get everyone to understand the coach's dream, his philosophy or her philosophy, and you've got to then get people to see where they play in it. And I'm a great believer in giving people opportunities. I'll be honest with you. In my professional career, I've, mo- I've I've sacked my staff because ultimately they weren't rowing the boat in the right direction, but they weren't sacked immediately. Because first of all, I question myself, have mm-hmm. I given them the right instructions have I actually explained myself properly? Have I given them a development plan and supported them enough? Now, if after a year that's not changing and it's detrimental to the organizations, they shouldn't be there. And some of them, some of them stop rowing themselves automatically and go and get another job because <laughs> right. it's not for them. And does everyone who's worked for Grant Downey say he's the best boss? He's been brilliant, to what? He is? Of course, they won't. Some people are not going to like me. That's, but but again, it's a high performance lead. You've got to accept that you're not there to be liked. You're there to be respected. It's a bonus to be liked. It's never been my priority to be liked. It's to be to be honest. And I think what you've got to do with these people is take them on a journey, but also as the high performance lead. What may be very obvious to you, having done the job for 25, 30 years, to a young graduate of only three or four years qualified, it won't be obvious. And so sometimes you've got to be an understanding of what were you like at that stage. And go back and try and remember that because it's so important to remember we're all at different stages and actually we all see the world very differently. And I think it's important to show that empathy, try and have, you know, I'm a great believer. Again, one of the hardest roles in the high performance team as the lead is you've got to have time for people when they require it. But sometimes people can be too demanding. And so I often used to say to people, I'll have time for you, but it might be six in the morning tomorrow. And they were like, I don't get up at that time. but I do, but I've got time for you. So it can't be that important if you don't have time for me. It's right. not that important, Grant. Well, you go and deal with it then. Or, you know, I can see you at 9 o'clock tonight when i am finished. If you're like, I'll phone you on the way home. Gee, I want to put the kids to bed. So you should, but is it important? Yeah. And, and the, when it's important, people will see you. And I think you've got to form that, lead that, that that people can see you're investing in them. Yeah. But actually, if they're not prepared to invest in the organ, you know, you get some people, what I call, they're maliciously obedient, which means you've got to suss them out. Grant, that's great. Yeah, high five. I'm going to do that for you. You're the best thing ever. They go and do something completely different. And you do. So they're maliciously obedient. You know, they're the silent saboteurs. They quietly go about. But you can, again, if you walk the shop floor, you see how they engage with the athletes, you know, you suss them out and then you've got to pull them up on it. And you've got to say, by the way, you know, what have I just witnessed? And they're like, well, well, you tell them and you've got to be quite direct. So, you know, I can be very empathetic, but I can be very direct too. And I wouldn't do it in front of people, but I'll be the one who will take them into the office and say, you know, what I've seen isn't good enough. And this, you know, I want to see better. How are you going to change it? Yep, yep,
1: I love it. And I think one thing that you mentioned, maybe not directly, but I think is is of critical importance. Again, if you're in any kind of leadership role, is this idea of setting expectations. And- Absolutely. I know this is something that a mistake that I've made in my gym setting, where if you don't set an expectation clearly, and this is hard, especially when you're young, it's hard to to look inward and say, this isn't a them problem right now. It's a me problem. And starting with yourself first and saying, hey, if I don't set a clear expectation, how can I expect them to follow it? Then like you said, if you do set the expectation and they don't change or they don't evolve, then it's a them problem. But I think that idea of setting expectations and being clear in that first and foremost is such a critical piece to getting everybody
0: on board. Oh, listen, it's 100% right. And where I got it wrong early in my career is I would have just said to you, listen, Mike, this is what I want you to go away and do, go and do it. And you would go away and do it. That's not the way to do it. What I would now say is, this is how I see it. Tomorrow, I want you to come back and tell me how you're going to do it.
1: Mm, I like what that. I want
0: to see is your interpretation of it. And that's where I went wrong. And actually, because it's amazing the number of times I thought what I had said had got through. Then when it came back, it's like, did I say that? So again, it taught <laughs> me the power of importance of actually sometimes, you know, to be clear, this is what I meant. Now, go away and then come back and tell me again. And that then becomes your ability to coach them. And then you've got to go and watch. And you may have to stand in the corner of the gym, you know, you know, and, and not stand there so you're eyeballing the person. That's not fair. <laughs> right. The athletes know that. They know that. But you've got to be there. And by the way, and you, even just sometimes walking past them, putting your thumb up and saying, that's exactly what I meant. That is a brilliant. And that's when it's time to praise them. Yep. And it's time because it's showing you – Again, I'm a massive believer in we don't in the high performance area praise staff enough for getting things right. We just think it's an expectation. And it should be an expectation. But human beings, if you praise them for the things they get right, you know, the thing they get wrong, you know, they blame me. I often say to people listen, I often give people I used to have a little thing on my wall in, in Manchester City and it said, and you you can tell me the most obvious thing I'm about to say, I used to say one and one is two. Two and two is four, three and three is six, four and four is nine, five and five is ten. So, what's the most obvious thing?
1: Four and four, and not nine.
0: <laughs> no, but, but that is not the most obvious thing. The most obvious thing is I got four out of five right.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: But, but we all are drawn to that one, aren't we? So yeah. what I'm saying is with human beings, let's give them praise for what they get right. Because then when we come to the four and four is nine, they'll accept it a lot better. So therefore, I've got 80% right. Why didn't we talk about that first? Mm, I like that. And I think with staff. So therefore, when you're watching someone in the gym and they're doing you know, the first delivery session, they will probably make two mistakes. But they'll probably get eight things right. So let's go. By the way, the way you taught that squat pattern today was absolutely fantastic. Loved it to bits. Brilliant. I loved it. You know, really focus on that. Never lose that ability. But now we're coming to the bench press technique. Do you think the weights were the right weights? No, they were slightly too heavy. They probably lumbar spines extending. So what are you going to do next time? I'm going to change that. What a session. Yeah. Now wow. I could have gone straight. What on earth were all those guys going to hyper extension for on the lumbar spine? What's that going to achieve? Because was going mad. He's worried about stress through the back. <laughs> ah, but, And you create a situation because that was the obvious thing in the session. Right. Yeah, but but by it's, but it's it, taken totally differently when you give them the good stuff first. Yeah, exactly. And and so I think so I think it's so important to. And again, if that's I, I and I can always remember when I, again at Manchester City I was non-clinical, but I treated a lot of ACL injuries in my career, and I can remember designating a young player at Tony's ACL to a physio never seen one before, and I just said to him, "But listen, you know, the first six weeks, it's fairly obvious what we do. It's fairly." And he just went, "Grant, stop a minute." And I went, what? He said, it's not obvious. I've never done one before. I went, I, I apologize profusely. You're right. I said, and, I, and he said to me, what do you want me to do? And I went, I don't, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I actually want you to go and research it and come and present it to me. And I'll be your critical friend for this one. And actually, I, I will evaluate it with you. And we'll go over it first. And I'll watch you deliver it to the player. But I'm not going to stand over the player, and I'm not going to tell the player, by the way, this is the first you've ever seen, and I'm standing over you because I've seen 200. That's not the way to do it. And I just said to him, at each stage, you prepare his milestones, his goals, and we did it in six-week stages, and you'll rehabilitate him. You'll then write this up as a case example that you'll take for your rest of your career. You'll evolve it. And it yep. will change, but it will only evolve. It won't. But actually, it would have been too easy for me to say, this is what you do in the protocol. Put this in, put this in, do this. That's actually not teaching anything. And a high-performance lead must must see their role as an educator, too, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, well, I was just going to say, how much better is he going to understand an ACL Rehab now, doing it this way versus if you had just told him what to do every session.
0: Exactly, and on top of that, I, I can remember this example very well because it was probably seven or eight years ago, and the young player is now still playing professional sport, football. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd not for Manchester City at a much smaller team, but probably that's who it was destined, and I can still. Every so often, I send a little message to that physio, even now, just to say, see, he scored another goal, just to remind him of the good job they did. And I've got no connection with the club. No, that way. But why not keep that association? Because that that should be, you know, again, what's the KPI of good rehabilitation? He's playing in five, six years' time still at a level. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. So here's maybe an even bigger question. How do you create the environment where different viewpoints can respectfully challenge each other, yet still find a way to work successfully together and keep an athlete-centric focus? Because like you said, you don't want a bunch of Grant Downies running around. You want some dissenting opinions. So how do you do that where people can challenge each other, but it's still focused on getting the athlete great
0: results? I think what you've got to do, we talk about psychological safety. And, and again, I wouldn't use those words in, in 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 the department I'm trying to set up. But what I would do is, first of all, I'm a great believer in looking at our own selves first and how who speaks out loud in meetings, who's quiet, who's a reflector. And again, what I've. I've I used to hold weekly case conference about injury management and about performance issues where we would mix s physios, athletic trainers together. But what I would always find is the same people would talk And the same people would hold their pen close to them and say nothing because actually they were taking information in but actually what i found in time is those who didn't say anything it's not they didn't have anything to contribute they probably felt a little bit inhibited by the talkers and also sometimes they needed more time to reflect so what i learned with the reflectors was i'd often give them the information a day before the meeting and say to them listen you guys I know it's not your big bag to you know, talk in front of Dave because Dave wants to talk at all times. <laughs> but actually, I want to hear your opinion. So this is the question I'm going to ask. And actually, I am going to look at you and ask you your opinion. You know, you know, or with other ones, what I used to say to some of them was, you know, you often have something to say, but you won't say it. And they went, well, we don't know how when to say it. And so I would learn with one of them, I used to, I used to say to them, hold a pen in the meeting. And when you start tapping the pen on the table, I'll tell everyone to shut up and we'll listen to Ben because Ben's got something to say. And then I used to have another fellow who who was a similar sort of person. I used to say to him, hold the end of the nose like that when you've got something to say. Because I could see by the body language that he was itching to say something. And so I think what you've got to do as the performance lead is decide how do you want your meetings? How do you want them set? Do you want them in a formal boardroom? Well, I don't. I want, I want my end of season review, first of all, wouldn't happen in the football club. It would be site where i would take everyone to a nice hotel i'd arrange a breakfast first i would have i would start the meeting and every single person was given 15 minutes to talk about one thing they've done well that year one thing they know they haven't done well and one thing they think the whole team should do differently and i would just get my pa to take all the notes in and then gather them and so i would create an environment that everyone's opinion was welcome and after 15 minutes if you were still talking there would be a buzzer pressed and you'd be sitting down <laughs> So you couldn't dominate the meeting. Right. And also at that time I used to say to everyone, everyone take their cell phone. It goes into the middle of the room. No one's allowed to check the cell phones. Because occasionally you would see that when I first started some of the meetings, people would have their cell phones in the mean once they'd finished talking, they'd bring the phone, no, no, no phones. And I used to walk in the room with no phone and say, Well, I have my phone's upstairs. Yeah. I've actually come to listen to you all. And so and I think what you've got to be able to do is suddenly you know understand who were the big voices and and it's not that they shouldn't be listened to but no went to park them and i used to say to these guys and i would take them individually and say listen because some of these people are i I call it the the forceful direct personalities you can be pretty forceful back with them like dave shut up now if i'd said that to stewart who was a quiet one he probably wouldn't speak for two weeks (laughs) right right and i think it's your job again as the performance leader to work out which ones you can be like that way and and again your style and this is how i've always treated i never treat anyone like i want to be treated I treat people like they want to be treated. So I'd ask them, you know, if I want to be direct in front of people with you, how do you want me to do it? Do you want me to just go, ooh, I don't want you to say that or sharp? <laughs> Which one do you want me to say? I can right. do either. It just because it's gonna get the same response. Or do you actually want me to go and I used to I remember one member of staff saying something to me. I used to frighten him the way I used to word the words really? And the way I would say it, and actually you learn to use it with good effect because once occasionally when things were going on and people I thought were talking in a different direction, what do you think, really? Is that what we're going to do? And I I think the power of silence is important too. Mm -hmm. And so I think, again, what you try and do is you try and create that environment. But again, the one thing I think what you have to do to create that safety is sometimes going to those meetings and, and tell the staff, you know, I was trying this this plan with the chief executive, and you know something? I got it wrong. He came up with a far better idea than me, and this is how we're going to do it now. And, so, and again, I think you can admit your own, not, not so much just mistakes, but normal mistakes on the journey, things that haven't quite gone right. And you can't share them all with the staff, but you can share some to show them that you're a human being and what you've learned from them and what you expect others to be like. Yep, I love Mm it.
1: I love it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot here. What's Mm -hmm. the most difficult part of being a performance leader, a high performance director?
0: It's lonely at times. And when I mean, but it's lonely, you've got to remember, you can't disseminate all information to staff. You know, certain things, you may know the head coach is going to be sacked in two weeks time. You can't tell anyone, you know, because the chief executives told you to ready to do this. And at times, you know, you, you, you have very little time for yourself, but I think that's right because of the position. You know, you're having to deal through others. So your own development is through others. You know, so if you, again, if you're not such a good performance director, you're looking for your next job because you're always wanting to go up the ladder. Right. But actually I think, you know, the, the 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 hard part of the job is, is you know, you sometimes have to divide yourself among so many people, but it's, it is part of the job. The hardest really bit is when you've got to move people on. You know, I remember one young man, I moved on from a position, and I'd known him for 24 years. You know, I'd I'd actually been his physical therapist when he was a professional player, and he was now working as a as a physiotherapist. And you know, I knew it was the decision had been made, and I did. It wasn't the good news is, or the bad news, whichever way you want to do it. I knew this young man was going to. It was time to, for him to leave the company, but it wasn't just my decision. It was my decision. I recommended it to the board but the board have to pass it and I can remember when I made the decision and then and again HR said they'll deliver the news no 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 I have to do that because I've made the decision. And this person, I knew his father, I knew his wife, I knew his children. You know, it, it, it it's terribly lonely. It's You know, I, I lost a lot of sleep over it. I still I still think about it now. I mean, it happened yeah. five years ago, you know, but it was the right decision. So don't think I don't think it wasn't the right decision. It was 100% the right decision. But I can remember facing him and he looked across the table. He said, before I leave, I need to know, did you make the decision or did the company? Because the company, well, I could maybe forgive you. And I went, well, I can't tell you it was the company. It was my decision but I had to seek clarity, but I can't lie to you and say the company have got, they have, cause they haven't, it was my right. decision. And so that part of the job is very lonely because who can you talk in the company about that before it's occurring? Nobody. Right. You know, and that is to me the hard, that's for me is that some people probably find that quite easy. I don't.
1: Yeah. Well, cause yeah, the whole show, we've been talking about emotional intelligence and, and creating relationships and You've obviously got a relationship and a very strong one with this, this person, and then you have to make yeah. that kind of business-type decision. It's not easy to mix those two worlds.
0: Oh, no, it, no, it's not. And, and and it depends on how you want to be. For some people, as I say, they'd be easier than others. I know it was the right decision because I was able to counsel enough people higher up in the organization to help. And and this person was given a I would never dream of walking to an organization and after Two, even in one or two months and say, this person needs to be fired. Because if they do, the person before should have fired them. Right, right. You know, because it shouldn't be like that. But I think, you know, those those bits are, are are where the job is lonely and it's tough, but it's meant to be. So, again, it should be no excuses for that. But it, it does wear you. And there's no point saying it doesn't because it does. For sure. For sure.
1: OK, big question time. If you could alter the space time continuum and give young Grant Downey one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be?
0: Oh what would that be probably the one thing would be would be to enjoy the journey more i sometimes had a a healthy dissatisfaction of instantly wanting to move on to the next challenge mm-hmm. and i think i would when i say celebrate successes more maybe winning trophies with teams i would have celebrated more i don't mean what's the right word just but just inwardly i was mm-hmm. very happy to have won something but i'm planning the next stage already yes and so i and also don't be frightened of getting things wrong and i wasn't But one or two of the the regrets I've had in my life are things I didn't do. I've never regretted anything I've done, even though it's gone wrong. But actually, I should have been maybe even more brave. And I was quite brave, but I should have been braver.
1: Mm, I love that. I love that. Okay, last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So for fairly short questions, your answer can be as long or short as you like. Okay. number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach or clinician?
0: Probably there's many, but if I choose one, I was fortunate enough in 2013 to be awarded what's called an OB, which is an officer of the British Empire, which is 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 an award given by the Queen, and it was given to me for my services in physiotherapy and working with young people, and knowing in the sport I'm working... I think in the time I can't remember many other people being awarded such a thing, was a great honour, not just a great honour for me, but for my family. And it goes also to back to when I was a young boy, as I think like I was telling you earlier. I'm dyslexic and had to be taken out of high school to learn how to read and write, and I'm still not very good at it. But I, but but actually, you know, you think of the teachers that helped you at the time, and so an honour like that, you know, is something that that you you take with you all your life. But you you remember the people that helped you achieve it.
1: Yeah, for sure. I love that. Okay.
0: Number two, this is something that
1: you put, I believe it was in your bio, but I want you to explain the concept of, quote, you've never treated an injury, but you've trained thousands of athletes who were injured, unquote.
0: Yeah, I think that to me is all about we physios, and I think S&Cs fall into the same category at times. We pigeonhole protocols too much rather than looking at the person. And I think, you know, every injury has a, a mental and an emotional brain attached to it. And that's what you're treating. And actually, you know, I have learned by, you know, I've been fortunate enough to lecture on six continents of the world and seen many different types of therapy, many different ways of how to strengthen, condition an athlete. And there isn't a right or a wrong way, in my opinion. There's just different ways. and Some of them are more optimal than others. And yes, there are some that you would not touch. But who says we've got the right way? So if you, for example, come from Argentina and let's say you've played street football all your life, you know, and you've you know and you've played small sided games, probably twenty thousand hours by the time you're fourteen, you know, you've injured your hamstring, do you really need to do Nordic curls? And you, you've never done one in your life before? Right. Possibly not. You probably need to do a lot of XLs, D-Cells on a pitch because that's what you're used to doing. Right. And I think by that way, one of the things I've always said is get to know the person behind it. And and different people will have different ways of, of of from rehabilitation. And there are principles. We know we need to load, but how do we load? Is there different ways of doing it? And I think if you get – and I can also remember one player who influenced me massively in my rehabilitation when I went to Middlesbrough. And I think it was in about the 10th week. I was there, one of uh, our African players, a lovely young man, tore his lateral ligament of his knee. And he'd been at the club five years, and it was a strange injury. But we, again, the surgeon decided to operate. And this was in about November time, and I can also remember speaking to to the manager about certain things. And when I was away talking to the player about the rehabilitation, he just informed me that he's coming into Ramadan. So during the day, it's hard for him to train because it, you know he wants to follow Ramadan. And I thought long and hard about this, and spoke to the the coach, who instantly said, "Gosh, you never told me he was a Muslim." I said, well, did you ever ask? But I said, "But I've got an idea with this player. Why don't?" we, allow him to sleep during the day and then later in the evening, once he's had a chance to eat, we do some rehabilitation because it'd be more effective and the manager was brilliant and the coach and said, yeah, let's do this and this player, you know, we, we expected him to get back, probably training, playing in about 12 weeks and at 11 weeks he returned to play but he returned, you know, and he was happy to come in and I used to stay I didn't stay for his whole rehabilitation session even, but I set it up and he did it himself and I just think He applied himself so much more to it because he felt as if he had a say in it. And I think in rehabilitation, we're too dictatorial about saying you must do this, you must do this. You know, what do you want to do in the process? How would it be best done for you? Now, you may not do that with children, but with a grown adult who who has maybe a different faith, a different background, a different creed to you and I, you will never know that unless you ask. But again and again, I can give you one final example, and I know I'm probably talking too much, but we had, I remember at Manchester City, we had one of the first team players who had, had, had damaged his hamstring. You know, and I, at the time, it was with a difficult manager who wanted him to do a certain regime that this player didn't agree with. And I can remember sending this player back to where he was from in Spain to spend time with his grandmother who hadn't been very well, and yet we spent a physio out with him to help work with him. And he came back in probably a week shorter time than I thought he would do. And I think sometimes we forget that value of connecting with a human being. And do they need to be treated in this wonderful multi-million pound training center? Sometimes the best thing is to go back home and see their family and still do the rehabilitation. But doing it in a simple gym with good principles works every bit as well. But if you don't get to know the person, you'll never do it. I love it. Wow. it's a good answer. Okay. Number three, what made you want to start mentoring young coaches? Probably because I saw the value in it for myself. And I think it's something our system lacks. And I think we've got some excellent technical programs to get better S&Cs, better sports scientists, but actually being better technically will only take you so far up the ladder. The next bit comes to about mentoring and being self-analytical. And you know, I mentor quite a number of people in different professions from, from SNC, physio, psychologists, performance directors, all doctors, whatever. And 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 the key, you know, when you really start to work on themselves and understanding how they see the world, they often find it really challenging, but they need someone to not be there for them all the time, but to support them, to get to help them see things and sometimes from a different lens, as I call it. And I knew how valuable it was in my career. I had some old wise owls. I'm probably an old wise owl, hopefully myself now. But I don't have all the answers and I don't pretend to, but I hopefully can help people be better at their job. But in the background, it's not now no, not to be front foot, it's back foot, but letting them, trying to get them to be the best version they can themselves.
1: I love it. Okay, last but not least, number four, what's next for Grant Downey? Do
0: you know, hopefully more of what I'm doing from that point of view. I love the mentoring. I really enjoy and I, I act as a critical friend for a number of organizations like City Football Group still. I do some work for the Scottish Football Association, so I'll be helping when I say planning. They've got an excellent high-performance lead who will be planning all of their, their performance for the European Championships coming up in 2021. I'm his critical friend, so he bounces, and I love that. I'm also hopefully training to be what we call a, a community responder. In, in Where I live in a very uh, small island, our paramedics, if someone suddenly has a heart a problem it takes them 30 minutes to get there so we rely for volunteers in the area so we don't have a fight where i live there's no fire station right. my neighbor who's a carpenter he runs the fire station it's voluntary so my job is to train as the first responder so i'm doing that next year so if anyone has a cardiac problem in i will go to them because i can get there in five minutes to help before the ambulance and it's doing something different too and yeah. and those things you know, know. again, I can remember talking to my neighbor who for 365 days is on call for fire. But as he said, if we don't do that, you know, well, how do we survive? And I love that community type of value that, you know, we, and, and so I thought I can't be a fireman. I can be a first responder. Yeah, I love it.
1: Mm-hmm. Grant, I mean, this has just been such a fun and refreshing talk. Love your perspective on things. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work that you're doing?
0: Well, thank you. I have a website and it's uh, www.grantdowney.co.uk. I have a lot of stuff that I've done and talked about today. And, you know, again, you can sign on as members. There's no fee. I have a lot of stuff people can download. There's other podcasts that I've spoke on. They're welcome to listen to that. And then there's a section where they can email me directly. And I'm a great believer in... Trying to help people. So, if people have got a specific question or they want a Skype call or a Zoom call, I do it. I've got time. <laughs> and even when I was working full time, I did it. You know, I'm a, I remember. When I first went to Glasgow Rangers, a very influential coach sat me down in the office on the first day, and he was he was replying to a lot of letters, and he gave me 25 letters from fans, and said, you know, these people write to you. Someone want to come and meet you, which might physio students or or S have them in, you know, and the rest of them the reply. And so I I believe in replying to every person that, that right to you or emails you even if it's a no because but it's still and I think it's you know we we have a, a privilege of the jobs we've done and we shouldn't take it too lightly and I think it you know you I, I'm helping to for example, students on the island where I live 18 who want to try and be a physiotherapist at the moment. They've applied to the university. I've helped write their statement by giving them advice. And I'm giving them an interview, you know, before they do it. And I think, again, if you ever think you're too big or to not help somebody else, we were all at that stage once. And let's not forget what it was like to be 11. I love it. Well, Grant,
1: again, thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. It was really great to talk to you today. Well, it was my pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. All right, my friend. That does it for this week's show with Grant. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, this was a guy that someone had put me onto. I didn't have a ton of experience or didn't have a ton of information on Grant when we got started. But man, when we got into this episode, I just found myself constantly nodding my head, just loving the the conversation, loving the back and forth. And I just found it so refreshing. Here's a guy that has worked in some of the highest levels of sport, but still is humble. He's still got the humility to to just say, look, I don't have all the answers, and I'm not perfect, but here's who I am, and I'm going to work each and every day to be a better human, to be a better leader, and I think we need more people like that in our industry. So just an amazing talk. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I got one of two favors to ask. Number one, if you're not already subscribed to the show, please take two seconds out of your day. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, and get subscribed to the show so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. Number two, if you're already subscribed, thank you, I appreciate it, but go one step further. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. This is the most surefire way to make sure new trainers, new coaches, new rehab professionals find the show and get exposed to the amazing people that we have on here each and every week. You know my goal is to make our industry a better place, and I think the more people we can put on to the podcast, the better. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. I love and appreciate you. Merry Christmas, and we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.